0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From
1: the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at WisdomTree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is an advisor to WisdomTree. The discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products and the views of our guests are their own, not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. have a really special show today in the studio with us. Uh, Leonard Nakamura, vice president and economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Background here, Philadelphia from the Wharton School. Leonard, welcome to our program.
0: Thank you. Uh, I have to say that when what I say here are going to be my views and not those of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia or the Federal Reserve System.
1: Always our own opinions, yeah. uh, Professor. So it's uh, Friday, employment report Friday, but also <laughs> day after the first uh, start of the Eagle season, which I know you were out last yeah, night. Yeah, I too. was there.
2: Got got uh, got to bed. I think at one thirty in the morning, but it was worth it uh, at the end. What well, was so eerie? It was so much. It was like a replay of, of course, that playoff game. Uh, you know, with the Falcons going downfield and then Ryan throwing to Jones in the end zone and missing with zero seconds. You know, it was unbelievable. It's like history repeats um and we pulled out a win um so <laughs> uh showing your youth i fell right asleep and you were <laughs> at the game party so. i was I, I i got revved up because i'll tell you the first half was terrible play really on both sides particularly eagles side but the second half was really exciting
1: <laughs> okay back to our uh our, our sort of topic du jour of the day um the employment report yeah so all right i I regarded this
2: as a pretty hot report, and I I say hot report in the sense of um, being hawkish in uh, in terms of Federal Reserve. I mean, everyone expects the Fed to raise on its September 26th meeting, um, and uh, we're not sure about December. um, But if if the reports continue in the pattern that we uh, just got, I think um, December – is going to be a slam dunk increase. Uh, also, uh, it, it isn't so much. I mean, we we got um, two hundred one thousand, which was a eleven thousand more than expected on the payroll. Now there was a downward revision of fifty thousand for the previous uh, 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 two months. Um, so uh, um, that was true, but a lot of uh, the the details were, were 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 hawkish. Now the unemployment rate was expected to go down from 3.9 um, to 3.8. It stayed at 3.9, but you have to understand that they round to the nearest 10th. It was actually 3.85, and so it was just about there. Um, but I think what really has de- hit the market, you saw it in the bond rate immediately. The 10-year jumped about four or five basis points on this, and that was aver- average hourly, hourly uh, earnings um, jumped by twice the expectation. It was expected to go up 2 tenths. It was up 4 tenths the year over year, 2.9. That's a new cyclical high. It revises the whole question of this uh, uh, very strong tightness in the labor market, putting inflationary uh, cost pressures on, which the Fed has to stand against. Uh, You know, also the... um, underemployment rate, the so-called U6 rate, uh, did decline to a new cyclical low of 7.4 percent. And remember, many economists we've, uh, regarded that as a slack uh, in uh, the system that could absorb a low unemployment rate without causing pressures. But that slack is obviously rapidly um, uh, disappearing uh, in, in the system. Also, we, um, you know, disappointing we want to see the labor participation rate rise because then we can absorb 200,000 increases we've been getting without pressures, but the um, the uh, labor participation rate actually fell two-tenths of a percent, so it just sort of stays in the range. The bottom line is that it, it, the economy is producing, through demand, 200,000 net jobs a month. Demographics is supplying us with 100,000, give or take, Uh, which means further tightening, further downward pressure on unemployment, um, uh, which means the the Fed has to continue to raise rates until they get that um, nonfarm payroll down much closer to the demographic increases in the population. I mean, I would like uh, Leonard's uh, take on that, um, what you agree and disagree with.
0: (laughs) Well, I think um one interesting thing is the fact that uh we did have this reduction in 50,000 uh jobs from the previous 2 months so even though we were a little off on, on the uh this year's uh, this month's forecast uh overall were it was a slowing of um the growth rate of employment from what we had been expecting. Um so we 're below two hundred thousand over the last three months um, I think it 's very encouraging that we are getting uh two point nine percent uh average hourly earnings, but that 's still a pretty slow rate of yes. growth
2: and it could be because of
0: productivity,
2: which we did see jump in the last quarter so don 't forget wage growth doesn 't necessarily mean inflation if it's caused by productivity increase right, exactly. and and so it's a little bit too soon to you know say for sure that that is uh inflationary at this particular point
0: right
1: so let me just give a you know, jump in with a reintroduction of of Leonard and also the Philadelphia Fed because there's some some interesting news um, in partnership with Wharton from the Philadelphia Fed. So, so Leonard, as as an economist, uh, before getting to the, the Philly Fed, you've been there for about 30 years. Before that, you were an economist at Citibank. You were at uh, a consultant for the Conference Board, but you've taught courses here at Wharton, I think, alongside Professor Siegel back back before the Philly Fed. Um, so one of the updates just briefly for people you know we've been doing a podcast from you know, our show but the Wharton and the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia have also now partnered to develop a new podcast series titled the Philadelphia Fed on Wharton Business Radio and we're going to start seeing them the first episode on this new partnership will be from today's conversation so it's uh it's an exciting new development for the Philadelphia Fed to be partnering with Wharton
0: Yes, and we're very excited, and, and it's really great uh, that we have this new means of transparency to uh, talk with the public about.
2: And Let me also say that um, there's always been a close relationship between Wharton and the Philly Fed. The, the Philly Fed has supplied us with excellent teachers when we have run short. Uh, um, we've had many of our faculty, including myself, many, many years ago as a research scholar, uh, to do sabbaticals and time at the Philly Fed, so this just continues. I think a great partnership that we've had through the uh, through the decades, really.
0: Absolutely, and we continue to have um, you know lots of conferences together. We have visiting scholars from Wharton and from the Penn Department, and it's it's really been great.
1: It's exciting to have the podcast, and we'll we'll keep you guys coming on our program. Um, well, I mean, maybe we could talk – let's jump into the the topic that you your f- research is focused on. And, Professor, we've talked about related I, – I knew you're going to be excited to talk to him because we've talked about are there mismeasurements in GDP that might get into this productivity? Productivity has been disappointing, but part of yeah. its measurement – Leonard, your research has focused on – GDP mismeasurement. Yeah, let me let me let me set that up because we spoke
2: as as you said, Jeremy, so many times on this show. Um, uh, one of the the in a way the puzzles of uh, the last uh, ten years, um, even starting a little bit before the financial crisis, is the slowdown in productivity. But it's gotten more market. I mean, it's we've had terrible productivity growth as measured. Uh, over the last decade. And normally in cyclical expansions, actually productivity runs ahead of its long-term normal, and this has been way below. Um, Also, by the way, this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon um, in the developed world, Uh, maybe even developing, but they have uh, many different factors, but in the developed world. And um, there's a lot of potential explanations for that, for this, but one of them, um, and, and this is what Leonard's research is really uh, directed at, uh, is the mismeasurement of, of output. Are we understating uh, the, uh, the output that we're getting because of free goods uh, and therefore overstating prices of, of uh, the goods that we buy? So, Leonard, can you give us a, you know, a a little bit of a framework for how you like to think about this issue and whether you think this is an important issue that impinges on the data that we, we look at.
0: Okay, let, let me begin by saying that I have good news and bad news. <laughs> and the good news is that the economy is undoubtedly much more vibrant and successful than our statistics say. The bad news is that we are much more uncertain about the true rate of growth and the true rate of inflation than, the, than we've been in the past. Let me uh, go so far as to say that it is not impossible, although my, i wouldn't say this was my central estimate, but it's not impossible that real growth is two percent faster than reported, and inflation is two percent slower wow, that's than amazing. reported, but there are huge uncertainties, and I want to emphasize that this is not the fault of our statistical agencies. Our statistical agencies are the best in the world. and these problems um, are being they're do, they're aware of them and they're doing their best to cope with them, but they're way underfunded to to do this. And by the way, you know our statistical agencies lead, the entire world's statistical agencies. And um, and so if we can't get the job done, nobody can get the job done. Uh, so the fact that this is occurring all over the world is not a surprise. Uh, everybody has the same problems. So let me start with free goods. right? And one of the interesting things that's happened is that digitalization, the Internet, you know, uh, the mobile broadband means that the transfer of knowledge and the transfer of information can take place much, much more cheaply than it has in the past. And, you know, we have a society that has really maxed out in a certain sense on quantity, right? We have um, too much food, you know, the uh, Malthusian prediction of too little food has really not panned out. You could argue that we have too much clothing, you know, we have more than a motor vehicle per Licensed driver in the United States, um, the gasoline consumption is uh, on trend shrinking, not rising. Um, the uh, so, and our statistical system was designed to catch quantity growth. Right, think back to the supply-demand diagram, you have price on uh, the uh, vertical axis and quantity on the horizontal axis. What we think of as greater, more GDP growth is a movement along that quantity axis.
2: These are called widgets, remember? Right. (laughs) An abstract little quantity of something.
0: Right. uh, But now what we have is digits
2: we've gone from widgets to digits <laughs>
0: <laughs> and digits uh are hard to keep track of you know so one example i like is the fact that we uh have had relatively li- little growth in real uh telecommunications output and uh and that's because the deflator is about zero, and we're not we're spending a actually a slightly shrinking portion of our budgets on telecommunications. And deflator, we
2: mean the price index, right? right. For some yep. of the non-economists out there. Right.
0: <laughs> so and uh, so the way we measure telecommunications output is by the minute right? But is minutes really what we care about? What's really been changing rapidly is the amount of data that passes through mobile broadband. That's been growing at a 60% annual rate, Mm -hmm. right? But we don't meter those data bits. And so we don't know how to count digital output And we don't know how to value, um, you know, these streams. So what happens is that we get all kinds of free goods, different apps that you can put on your phone that don't cost you anything, like, let's say, Google Maps. I mean, I was just in Copenhagen for the first time. And, you know... If I wanted to get someplace, I could look at the bus map, but the bus map was nearly incomprehensible. But if I went onto Google Maps, it would tell me not just, um, you know, what what was the fastest bus to take, but you know exactly how to get there and how long it would take.
2: And in English.
0: And in English. Or any language you want. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and but that's free. Now how do we value that? Right? So we can't value the cost of the telecommunications. We can't we don't know how to v- measure the value of the app itself because it's coming in for free. Right? And uh digitalization is a process by which knowledge and information pass basically costlessly, through the universe, right? Think of Wikipedia, hmm. right? So I was reading somewhere that uh, nine billion page downloads, uh, page views of Wikipedia a day, right? And But Wikipedia is a volunteer organization. It comes for free.
2: Right. I mean, yeah, no, the The ability to get and access information has exploded. As you were talking, uh, Leonard, uh, I was thinking of other revolutions through history, uh, and, and we can argue this is the deepest. I mean, you know, I, I think the Chinese in the second century invented paper. Um, then, of course, we had the, the Gutenberg Bible, the printing for the first time in the 17th century, which accelerated the ability to disseminate information. Is this perhaps the greatest of all of them?
0: I, I don't know whether it's the greatest of all, I, but, uh, I mean, if you think about, I've, I've spent some time s- studying the period uh, in the late 15th century after the Gutenberg Bible uh, came out, and, you know, it's... Uh, Mm mind-boggling, the impacts of that. So not only did we wind up having the uh, Catholic Church get into all kinds of trouble uh, because of uh, the Gutenberg press, but uh, the exploration of um, the Western Hemisphere was greatly accelerated by the printing press as well.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like the, I remember you we talked about that in the future for investors Great. and it was like the cost of communication went down by a factor of 50 or something right. like that and I wonder how when you're talking about the inflation the def, we might be having 2% less inflation or this uh this dramatic cost right. the costs are decreasing more than we realize I mean do you have a sense of how much cost of communicating is has been decreased from the internet
0: Well I I mean Just looking at data quantities, um, you know, we're talking anywhere from 30 to 50% a year. And this has been going on for decades.
2: And and, and we're not even talking about the the value of time. I mean, if you think of, you know, my early days in doing research, I had to go to the library and and hope that certain books and volumes were there. I mean, that – um, before you could get them and then determine whether that, that was relevant. I mean, it was an extremely time consuming process uh, as well. Forget about the cost. I mean, everyone had an encyclopedia and, you know, cost several hundred dollars to a thousand if you wanted to get the Britannica of it. But um, just, just the time spent uh, has uh, just, of course, become almost uh, instantaneous.
0: Right, and the convenience factor is really important. So, um, Shane Greenstein, his uh, professor at, out at Stanford, has has talked about this. Um, that the internet uh, activity is very elastic and bursty, and what that means is that you can do it whenever you want. and fit it into your schedule, right? So, um, you know, you're online at the drugstore, and you go onto the Internet, and suddenly time that otherwise would be wasted becomes valuable, right? So there's a way in which the Internet, as we now have it in this mobile form, permits us to expand time
2: think of all the time shifting, which is a major breakthrough in entertainment. You see movies when you want, you see TV shows when you want, you don't have to be there. I mean, one of the few things that you do have to be there is if you want to watch a live sports show, because you know it you know and of course the advertisers know that- because <laughs> that's about the only thing they can exploit now um, in terms of that, but the the ability to time shift and therefore you're right absolutely expand time and GDP doesn't explicitly put any value on leisure time at all that's uh, right
0: and uh and GDP explicitly excludes home production, yeah. And one of the interesting things about the mobile Internet and the Internet generally it's that the first two-way mass communication that human society has experienced. And by the way, we've been talking a lot about the positives of all this, but there are also lots of negatives. And that's one of the reasons that I say that we really don't, no, don't have with great certainty the value of a lot of um, what we're producing.
2: There's no gatekeepers to so much of the information that's produced, so you don't have that automatic feeling that, is it, is it true or not? Uh, we, everyone, of course, talks about the fake news. Uh, of course, on the entertainment side, you're not, you're not worried about that as as much. You can time shift it. Uh, but I, I'm very interested in the very beginning. Did, did I hear you write this? You, you say it could be all this counting for free goods could be as much as 2% a year above what
1: we now compute. And before you answer that, I just let me reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Leonard Nakamura of the Vice President of Research of Philadelphia Fed.
0: Okay, so um, – uh, <laughs> I was told not not to say okay when I start talking, so yeah, and fine. that stopped me for a second <laughs> here. Um, why could it be two percent? Let me give you just a tiny example. So, we just said that mobile broadband communication uh, has been growing in data as me- if we use data as the unit of quantity has been growing about 60% a year right mm. so that's about 1% of personal consumption expenditures so if that's growing 60% a year that would add 0.6 mm-hmm. to pce and subtract personal point consumption se- right, personal right. consumption and subtract 0.6 from inflation 0.6% so uh and there are a bunch now uh I don't think that data is the necessarily the right quantity measure to be using there. But we don't really know what is. And um and I could multiply that example uh in many different ways. For example, uh let's take the self-driving car now we haven't gotten all that far down the road of the self-driving car but it doesn't seem impossible that over the next 30 40 years we could get there right well the way we currently count automobiles right the self-driving car would probably not uh have much more real value than a non-self-driving car. And yet the advantages in terms of increased leisure and in terms of reduced accidents and all that kind of thing would be trillions of dollars.
1: And it'll likely be a decrease in the number of people driving. probably be a downward revision because you're going to have a lot less cars. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, Let let me be a little bit of a devil's advocate Um, uh, you and Good.
0: I I need devil's
2: help uh, <laughs> uh, 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 of course you and I both know uh, Robert Gordon of Northwestern mm-hmm. University in fact we have uh, Joel and, Moker and uh, Yes, Gordon. Joel Moker and Robert Gordon has been on our show um arguing uh, one Robert Gordon being known as a productivity pessimist uh, Joel Moker as a productivity optimist um but Robert Gordon has written uh, a a very lengthy uh volume called the rise and fall of the U- U- us uh, growth um and he acknowledges these quality changes but he said we've been having these quality changes forever um and they they're not they're not measured um uh, now, we, we were talking a little bit at, at lunch about um, the first sort of mass media where when we went to television, well, first radio and then TV, you don't pay for each program, but you're getting all this entertainment uh, there. Now, it's not two-way. As you're saying right now, we have the two-way uh, inter- interaction uh, with the current uh, smartphones. Um, but... Could you argue that we've had these types of qualitative changes in the faster? Do you think this is a quantum break from the type of qualitative changes that we experienced um, uh, over the past century?
0: That's a really tough question, and my uh, and I'm trying to work on some answers to that as as we speak. But um, I have not gotten all that far. And and I would guess that even when uh, that particular set of papers is completed, we'll still have a lot of uncertainties. So, for example, you know... Bob Gordon likes to talk about how valuable indoor plumbing is. Mm -hmm. And there's no question that indoor plumbing is tremendously valuable. And even today, people's willingness to pay for indoor plumbing is really quite high. So they – and it – you know, water is provided by and large by governments. And it's – you know, sometimes it's metered, uh, but it's – we pay much less than uh, consumers value it at, uh, and that's you know people also talk about air as being a similar thing, and uh, so there are a lot of thorny issues to even think about this stuff.
2: Yeah, let me just elaborate a little bit, but what we're talking about—remember, GDP is price times quantity. Um, for something to have a non-zero price, it has to be scarce. Because if if it's all, if it can be free, and and when can pick up as much, there wouldn't be a price to it. So um, you have to realize when we when like when we teach econ one, we have to m- make a big distinction between what we call wealth and welfare. Um, one m- values everything at the margin. And welfare takes what we call the total utility, total satisfaction. And, you know, we get t- tremendous satisfaction from having, um, you know, clean air, clean water. We pay very little for it. Um, so it doesn't get into GDP in any meaningful way, but it's extremely important. Let me just review, um, for those people who might be joining us, that... We're we're one of the big disappointments in the official data is a very low productivity growth and GDP growth that we have experienced over the last ten years. Uh, not only in the United States, it's a worldwide phenomenon. One of the explanations, not the only one, but one of the explanations for it is we are mismeasuring all the fr- you know free output doesn't get a price doesn't get into GDP. Um, um and we're talking about for, uh that it, it it's potentially possible that GDP is is growing up to 2% faster um than um we uh, we think it is now since it's growing at a little over 2 this is almost a doubling of that now i i Leonard is very careful of saying there's a huge uh what we call standard error Around this, so don't you know? Since it's not necessarily you know a hard estimate by any means uh, on that. We talked about the free goods, and then at the break, we we began to talk about other sources of mismeasurement mis- and um, uh, healthcare, which, as we all know, is becoming a bigger and bigger fraction of GDP on spending and government and. Probably is destined to do that given the ageing of the population into the future. Um, uh, Leonard, can you tell us about some of the measurement problems that we have in healthcare?
0: Well, one very simple measurement problem is that doctors know more than they used to, they have uh, more knowledge. There's been a all kinds of research that 's been done, there are all kinds of new medicines there are all kinds of new diagnostic tools at their disposal. Um, but we basically consider an hour of a doctor 's time as the same product as it was sixty years ago so um, you know, so if a doctor's uh, an hour of a doctor 's time Become, has become more expensive, then uh, that's inflation. Right. Uh, and it's not so clear that it really is. Well, I that understand We may that be getting a lot more value.
2: we talk about hospital nights as the output of the hospital, which is crazy. Because if you can, like, you know, you used to have knee surgery, you were in a week. Now, laparoscopic surgery, you're in a day. Um, I mean, in a way, the price has gone down, you know, like, you know, 80 90%. But that's not how it gets measured.
0: Right. And the other thing is that the laparoscopic surgery is much, much less painful. The recovery time is much shorter for the patient. So the patient is all kinds of better off. And yet, we don't know how to measure that as an improvement in output from the healthcare industry. And the result is, is that we think that healthcare um is declining in terms of its productivity. And so we have all this research and knowledge explosion within the healthcare industry and but that shows up as a cred- as a contraction of the production frontier, right? We're getting less out f- for our inputs, and it's all because we don't know how to measure output. And we're talking about uh, anywhere from a seventh to a fifth of the economy here, depending on how you count it all out.
2: Now, now some say critics would say there is areas of absolute inflation. I mean, we take... And I'm not taking new drugs because that is a big question about. You know, the, like, you know, you finally found a cure for hepatitis C and it's, you know, $800,000, but we never had that before. How do you value that? But then you have things like EpiPens and uh, generics that are the same and have gone way up in price. Now, that, would you have to admit, is pure inflation there?
0: Yes. There is. Pure inflation, there may be, there are certainly examples of medical waste. A huge measurement issue is what about this opioid epidemic? A lot of people have said that an important part of the opioid epidemic uh, arises from uh, lower standards for prescribing um, opioids Mm -hmm. and people thinking, oh, uh, you know, I can take these like candy. It's not going to hurt me much. And, uh, you know, but that was a huge medical misjudgment. So uh, there are definitely big downsides. And, and again, that's part of the uncertainty of this whole business that uh, knowledge is very hard to value.
2: And 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 this another thing, and this this harkens back to the beginning of our discussion. You know, GDP was set up for a goods economy, um, and as time goes on, the service sector gets larger and larger and larger. And how do you measure output in the service economy? Of course, healthcare is one of them. There are other things. It's a much more troubling. Sector to value than um, the the goods output that we have,
0: right? And another issue here is what is healthcare? It's not like you go to the doctor to be entertained to, to feel good. You go to the doctor basically to make you uh, improve your health. And that's an investment. It's not really a consumption good. And how do we, how should how should we be thinking about that? Um, and how should we value that investment? Um, David Cutler and uh, at Harvard and a, a bunch of researchers around the country have argued that um, at, if healthcare increases your longevity, that you should value it at whatever you value an additional year of life being. So let's say, you know, on average we think an additional year of life is 100000 or $200,000. Um, then if you increase longevity, then uh, that's an increase in value. And let me be very concrete about that. So for the last few decades um uh longevity has gone up by about uh two years every decade, so that's two tenths a year right so that's uh for the average person, let's say a year is worth a hundred thousand dollars that's point two times a hundred thousand is twenty thousand dollars right.
1: It's a big part of our median income. That's a, a big a part of our
0: median income.
2: But then again, as you mentioned, have we seen an acceleration of it? So if this is a trend that's always been, and we may mismeasure it or not measure it, but it wouldn't be changing the equation today compared to how we measured GDP in 1960 or some other
0: date. Except the differences in 1960 um, we've spent, maybe 4 or 5% of our economy on healthcare, and now we're spending four times as much. So in the past, if there was a mismeasurement problem, it was small, and now it's much larger.
2: And and I like your idea about it is investment. It's investment in your in your own human capital, in your own ability to
1: So is the accounting, so GDP we always learn in your class, GDP is C, you know, consumption so, plus investment I plus G and, and then net exports. But is there an accounting that matters if it's C or I? Uh
0: yeah. There, um, so it's uh the C is the stream. Of um, value that you get from making the investment, from the capital, that, to the human capital that you have in this case, health capital, and uh, so um, you know the uh, you you have to be calculating what the how that stream, what the uh, investments is, and you have to be thinking about the services that you're getting.
2: Yeah, in, in an analogy, housing, you build the house that goes in I. Housing services that flow from the house go in C. Right. right. So you're saying you invest in your health, and, and the experience of good health is in, a con, is in the consumption part of, of that uh, equation.
0: That's right. So what really matters is not just longevity but disability-free longevity. Correct. Right? Because the flow that you are uh, receiving is more valuable when you're disability-free than when you're not. You you
2: you we're going to get to another and very important sur- service area which is education and measurement of that output in just a moment but uh, in talking about that uh, then I remember work that you did a number of years ago about uh, um, uh, firms we don't capitalize the r and d that firms do, um, and um, I think the GDP statisticians have begun to take do more of that than what they had done before. Um, um, do you want to speak to that a little bit in terms of the GDP?
0: Right. So right now we cal- we cap- capture um maybe half per uh, 5% of GDP is intellectual property and that includes software, R&D and uh, uh some other things. Uh a broader calculation of that number uh would look more like 10-11%. Of GDP. Um, And the reason that broader number is more important is that that broader number is actually bigger than um, business fixed investment. So what businesses are investing most in is in change, in novelty, new knowledge. um, And can it be that we're investing a tenth of our resources into improving the economy and the result is a really, really slow rate of growth of total factor productivity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really hard to swallow. And moreover, the incentives for innovation have become massively high-powered. That is, if you think about, we have billions of customers who are attached to the internet. And if you can come up with something that's worth a dollar to each of those customers, and you can get even a fraction of that dollar back from them, why, that's a unicorn. Mm-hmm
1: right and it goes to like why corporate profits are at an all time high relative to to sales versus gdp and profit productivity is not measured there in the in the, right. in the and, corporate world it's it's productive
0: and you know so if you think of the big 4 you know apple alphabet amazon facebook i could argue that the most important things that those corporations create are not in g d p as we measure it, so over the last what seventeen years, those guys have added over three trillion dollars market in, value. in market value yeah uh With and yet, very
2: little physical capital as we know it right? right
0: and and yet they don't show up no in g d p so th- i mean so. For example, Google and Facebook, you get their products for free. Yeah. It doesn't cost anything to go on Facebook. It doesn't cost anything to use Google search. Right? For Apple, Apple is not a manufacturer, although in many, many ways it looks like a manufacturer, but it produces stuff in China. right? So what happens? In GDP terms, iPhones are imported into the United States. They're not a U.S. product, Mm -hmm. right? And the intellectual property that's been created here is in (laughs) Ireland.
2: Because of its low tax rate for anyone listening? (laughs) Which we tried to, you know, by lowering the tax rate, get some of it uh, back here. Yeah. Um, And,
0: And Amazon is a retailer and it provides goods at lower price than conventional retailers and is Um, But the
2: convenience factor is enormous
0: there. Well, you say that the convenience factor is enormous, but the way national accountants think about this is that if we're paying less for goods through Amazon, that that must be an inferior product. It's a
2: different product. They have a different price line for it. It happened when Walmart, the big box retailers, right. came in, and all of a sudden they were selling food. Uh, oh, it's a different experience if you buy it there, and they weren't lowering the price of food. Is, am I right about right. What, the way That's they exactly used to do right. that? I think yeah. they finally have gone back to that, but they were very slow at, right. at making. You know, uh, before we, and I don't want to get an education when you know, 10 minutes left, I, I just am thinking, you know, we, we talk about slow productivity growth, um, measured. We talk about slow, real GDP measured. We talk about real wages stagnating. Um, but then when we take a look at consumer surveys, uh, you know, like the, the uh, conference board just came out with consumer confidence almost at an all-time high. I mean, it just is almost as, as at the top of the Internet bubble of 2,000 and it's a record high. And And others – it isn't that like, people don't feel like they're stagnating. I mean, I, I, there's, it seems to me uh, that there's dissonance there and that this mismeasurement might be some of it. We're really not stagnating anywhere near as much as the
0: official statistics tell us. Right. So F. Scott Fitzgerald said, and I'm sure people said it before him, that the test of a first class mind is to hold two conflicting ideas at the same time. Right? And I would argue that our current economy forces everyone who looks at it to have a first class mind, in that our economic statistics basically say that the economy is moving very, very slowly and yet the if you look at what people talk about and the way they're experiencing the world we we experience the world is changing extremely rapidly mm-hmm. right and if you everywhere you look you see the prices of all kinds of things falling rapidly like for example you know, around 2,000, it cost the U.S. government several billion dollars to decode the human genome for the first time. Now we're talking about what a thousand dollars? Some people say three hundred dollars. I mean, that's a rate of descent much faster than Moore's law. All right. So um, let's uh, let's
2: move to. I mean, this is leaving that and maybe tying it later, but. Let's move, because we only got a few minutes, to this. the education. How do we now measure output in the educational sector? How do you think we should be, and what are we missing here?
0: Okay, so basically we have the price of a semester, right? So in higher education, we value, uh, we cost a uh, it out as the price of a semester that's our unit of inflation the there's uh, a number of po- problems with that including the fact that people don't pay the sticker price for tuition mm-hmm. but the big thing is that an hour of co- a semester in college in terms of its value in the marketplace has gone up tremendously so uh and really you're not again like uh healthcare in education you don't necessarily go to college to because it's great consumption because you enjoy every minute of it in fact a really good education is going to challenge you but the um uh but what we we're going for is, in order to create a base of knowledge that will enable us to learn for our entire lives, and uh, and it as be a, an investment again, it's an investment,
2: and, and then and, a flow of, of 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 services from that. Let, let me just pick up again on that interesting fact that I had not thought about. When you say about tuition, we know it's going up at you know eight, 10 percent, or whatever year, way ahead of measured inflation. Um, and then you mentioned something that's really important. Um, you know, the average person doesn't pay the sticker price. The amount of aid is enormous. Um, now, that uh, are you telling me, and I think this is the way it works the uh, GDP statisticians just call, uh, talk about a rise in tuition. They just take that gross commission. Do they take the effective price that students are paying for it or just the gross price that uh,
0: is published there? Um, well, uh, I'm not sure, okay. to be honest. The, I know that in the past... They were just taking that gross price.
2: Which, of course, means a lot more inflation, which, again, lowers productivity mm-hmm. and lowers real GDP from what it really would be. The other – it's almost like a transfer. I think they maybe call a student aid a transfer payment, which doesn't get into GDP, right. into those government purchases over there.
1: We've been having an interesting conversation. Oh, We're I in see. our very running. final <laughs> countdown. So, Leonard, uh, in our last minute, 30 seconds here, any, any place people can follow your research at the Philly Fed? Any other final closing thoughts there?
0: Um, well, I have a web page on the philly f- fed site um and my working papers and um other publications show up there uh, and uh i think in in uh, I also do a lot of presentations at conferences and um things like that so if you google me, you'll probably find find other... Uh, Can we, we
2: find you on YouTube?
0: Uh, I don't think I'm on YouTube. <laughs> but
1: we do know now the Philadelphia Fed will have their own podcast. Right. They're going to be replaying segments, original interviews that aired on Wharton Business Radio, starting today with his very first interview with economist Leonard Nakamura. Thank you for coming down to our studio, Leonard.
0: Thank you for having me here.
1: You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM One Thirty Two. Thanks to our producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer Daniel Bruno. You can also listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.